Welcome. My name is Caleb, and you are listening to the Vitamin C Podcast. James Cameron, he's a mad dog. He did it again. I can't believe it, but he did it again. I mean, I can believe it because I said he would, but sure enough, I was right, which I guess is not that out of the ordinary. But yes, James Cameron pulled this one off. So, hey guys, it's me again, obviously. And before I dive into Avatar, because I don't know how long I'm going to talk about Avatar, but I'm going to try and talk about it as much as I can without spoiling the movie. Because that's kind of my thing. I rarely go into spoilers, and at some point I probably will with a lot of these bigger movies, but I just don't know when the right time is to do it. Maybe a month after, maybe I wait till it's available on demand. I don't know, but I'll get around to that eventually. Before I get into that, though, there is some bigger news in the past week regarding movies and entertainment, and me being a comic book fan, a DC fan, it's pretty relevant, I think, to a movies and entertainment podcast, even though I don't usually just talk about movie news and stuff. That's not really my thing. I'd like to just talk about movies specifically. But this was a pretty big thing because it revolves around movies and characters that I'm pretty passionate about. So I feel like I should talk about it. So the DC Universe is kind of controversial. It's very much a mixed bag. Most people see it as inferior to Marvel and even the people that like it feel like it was partially ruined. And then there are some people that just like everything. And so they don't really care about the state of the universe. But for those like me who follow it pretty closely, it's been a mess in these last few years. I mean, it got off the ground okay, and then quickly turned into the biggest mess possible. And it's kind of just not to say embarrassing to be a DC fan, but at the same time, it's hard to defend a lot of the decisions that have been made by Warner Brothers who own the rights to DC Comics. And as much as I would like to get into all the details about the history as to what went down at DC throughout the years, I feel like I'd just be talking too long if I did that. I'll just say this studio went through a million different executives in charge of DC and everyone kept wondering what the plan was going forward. And then finally, they promoted James Gunn after the Suicide Squad lost them about $200 million at the box office. They said, this is the guy we're going to put in charge of the DC universe going forward. And sure, someone's going to say, oh, but Caleb, it was an R-rated movie that released during COVID. Yeah, they still should have never put that much money into his movie. But I guess they thought, well, the original movie nobody liked and it made all this money. So if we can invest even more into this one and people will like it, then surely it'll do better money at the box office, which did not work out. And it's even like the first Minions movie made over a billion, and the second movie got much better reviews, but it made a couple hundred million less or a few hundred million less than the first Minions. I don't know why. Sometimes it's just how it is. And by the way, the first Minions movie is much funnier than the second. I think that needs to be said. I don't actually understand why the second one is that much better reviewed. It's more centered on Gru, so I guess there's less minion silliness that maybe turned a lot of critics off, but I think a lot of people are there for the minions. But anyway, James Gunn was put in charge, and there have been different stories breaking every day about James Gunn's plans for the future of the DC Universe. And every time he'll reply and be like, yeah, this isn't true. Yeah, that's not true. 
And everyone then goes crazy saying, wow, don't you love how James Gunn is so vocal by shooting this stuff down? I'm like, yeah, I guess. But then he's like arguing back and forth with like bot accounts. Like seriously, he argues with accounts that have like five followers all the time. And it's like, dude, don't you have a universe to build? Like, that's crazy. I don't really see any other director as chronically online as he is. And that's not me hating because my favorite basketball player is Kevin Durant, who spends a lot of time on Twitter. But at the same time, Kevin Durant's job is to show up, practice, play basketball, go home. And that's really it. James Gunn is supposed to be building an entire universe and is writing a movie right now, which I'll talk more about. And he's in post-production of one of his other movies, so he should be very, very busy, but he is finding a lot of time to argue with a lot of random people that I don't even know if are real. You know, it seems like they're not real people, but anyway, long story short, because I'm already taking too long on this, they had a cameo at the end of The Rock's Black Adam movie that came out a couple months ago. You guys know I wasn't a fan of the movie, and I did mention that there was the Superman cameo, and it was Henry Cavill's Superman, who had not been seen on the big screen since the 2017 Justice League movie, and then had not been seen in a DC film since Zack Snyder's Justice League the year before. But as far as big screen appearances, the last time anyone saw him was in 2017's Justice League, where his face had CGI because he had a mustache for Mission Impossible Fallout, and he couldn't shave it. And so they had to digitally remove it. So his whole mouth was like fake. It looked really, really silly. It looked really bad. And you made a very handsome guy look goofy. But yeah, they had Superman in that post credit scene. And then shortly after, Henry Cavill announced, yeah, I'm back as Superman. And everyone was really excited because everyone, even people who did not like the Zack Snyder movies very much, they did like Henry Cavill as Superman. They felt he was perfectly cast and really wanted to see him in another Man of Steel movie. And then there were rumors that they were working on another Man of Steel movie. And then just the other day, Henry Cavill dropped an Instagram post, and James Gunn dropped a thread on Twitter around the same time. And it was basically James Gunn saying, hey, yeah, we met with Henry Cavill, and we just couldn't really find a place for him in the future of the DC universe, because the Superman film we're doing is a much younger version of Superman which is like, how much younger can he be? Henry Cavill's still in his 30s. But he said, oh, but it was a really good meeting and we wish him the best and hope that we can find a spot for him somewhere else in the DC universe going forward. And Henry Cavill on his post seemed pretty sad about it, but said, hey, you know, I love the character and the character will always live on. So best of luck to the next guy to don the cape. And a lot of people felt really sad for Henry because it's like you had the perfect Superman, but because James Gunn is now taking over the DC universe, they're saying he's kind of wiping the slate clean. But at the same time, he has his Peacemaker show, which he did season one of Peacemaker, which was a spinoff of his The Suicide Squad movie, which is supposed to be connected to all the other DC stuff. Even at the end of Peacemaker season one, there's Jason Momoa's Aquaman, there's Ezra Miller's Flash. And then I think there's the silhouette of Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman and Henry Cavill's Superman. But it establishes that the Zack Snyder Justice League lineup is in the same universe as Peacemaker. And right now he's working on Peacemaker season two. And by the way, his wife is a character in Peacemaker and his wife was in Black Adam. 
And so a lot of people are like, oh, so he's going to reboot the universe, but he's going to keep the characters that he created because he takes these D-list characters or Z-list characters, like characters nobody knows, and changes everything about them just so they're basically original characters with the names of characters from the comics. Because his characterization of these characters is nothing like what they are in the comics, but people don't care because they're characters that people don't care about. But some people are thinking that he's kind of on a power trip right now, that he's essentially getting rid of any casting that was not his own idea and rebooting the universe with just the characters that he wants and bringing in new characters that he's going to cast. So, yeah. I'm not a fan of it. I'm not. And I'm not really looking forward to it. I have a number of reasons that I'm not a fan of James Gunn. I actually think he's a talented guy. I've liked a lot of the projects that he has worked on, but him as a person, there's a number of things I wish I could talk about, but they are things that would flag my podcast for saying those specific words. And it's because, yes, if you guys are familiar, he lost a job because of old tweets And a lot of people think it's just the tweets, but it is actually way worse than just the tweets. If it was just the tweets, I'd be like, you know what, as a creepy thing for a 40 something year old guy to joke about. But then when the guy is actually friends with people who are the things that he joked about being, that's where it gets a little dicey. And there's much more than that. There's also a film critic who he's very good friends with, who is a known sexual predator and a bully at that before anyone even knew about this stuff about him. Devin Faraci is the name. But Devin Faraci had a reputation for bullying people, specifically filmmakers and writers in Hollywood. And so there were a lot that would kiss up to him so that he wouldn't go hard on them. Because if you are on his good side, then your movies would usually be pretty well received because this guy was such a bully that there's a lot of people that just go along with whatever he says. But Damon Lindelof, who is a writer, director, producer that I am a big fan of, he did the Watchmen TV series. He helped write Lost with J.J. Abrams. He helped write the Abrams Star Trek movies. And he's worked on a number of other projects. But Damon Lindelof had said that Devin Faraci owes him money for his therapy to this very day because of how he treated him on social media. Because just about every day, there was a different tweet about Damon Lindelof. And if you go to the guy's Twitter account, it is all just nasty tweets about people. And sure enough, him and James Gunn follow each other. He got a special invite to the premiere of the Suicide Squad, which people often tell you was in the middle of the COVID variant. I think it was the Delta variant. And so there was a very limited audience at this particular premiere. But guess who was there? Front row seats, Devin Faraci, because he has good buddies with James Gunn. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. You could also look into the names Houston Huddleston and James Uringer. He goes by the nickname Jimmy Urin. And you'll be able to find a lot more. Jimmy Urin, who, by the way, was just in Guardians 2. So if you were to say that James Gunn was a changed man from tweets 10 years ago, I'd say, oh. Well, then why is this guy who is a predator in his 2016 movie as a cameo, his good buddy, correction, 2017 movie, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2 is in 2017. But yeah, I've rambled way too long about this. I'll just say I think he's on a power trip right now. I don't know exactly what he's cooking, and I'm just not really excited for it. I am a DC Comics fan, and part of me will 
probably be curious about whatever is being released, but I just don't have a ton of faith in the brand. I've been losing faith for years because they just have not had people in charge that seemed like they actually cared or knew what they were doing. And the sentiments have not changed. I just don't have much faith in the current brand. Matt Reeves has his Batman universe, and I think he's a good director. I liked the Batman. And I think that he can make good sequels to the Batman. But as far as all the other DC stuff goes, I don't know, guys. I really don't know. And I'm sad for Henry Cavill because he really was a great Superman. And it's kind of the end of an era. He was part of some of my favorite films. Man of Steel, Batman v Superman, Zack Snyder's Justice League are some of my favorite movies ever. They're absolutely at the top of my favorite comic book movies ever. I'm glad that they got made. I'm glad that they were all eventually released in their actual complete form in their director's cuts, but it's a shame of what's going on right now. And I don't think that anyone is safe. I guarantee you if they are taking out old actors, then Ezra Miller's flash is surely out. Jason Momoa, they're saying that he's out as Aquaman, that he's going to be Lobo in the new DC universe, which is literally just casting a guy based on looks. And I'm not so sure about Gal Gadot's Wonder Woman. I can guarantee that Ray Fisher's Cyborg is out because Ray Fisher has kind of gone into it with James Gunn on Twitter before, partially because James Gunn had liked tweets in defense of his good buddy Joss Whedon when Ray Fisher called out Joss Whedon for being a really bad guy. So yeah, I'll just say any of the original guys that Snyder cast in the universe are pretty much out. Anything related to The Rock is pretty much out. I think the only stuff that's staying is the stuff that James Gunn has been attached to already and everything else is kind of getting rebooted. So yeah, it's a real shame. I think he's going to lay out his plan pretty soon and everyone's going to see. If that's something that you're excited for, then great for you, but it's just not for me. And I'll surely cover this stuff when it comes out, if it comes out. But for now, I'll just leave it at that. I'll just say that's my feelings about it. I'm sad for the end of an era. Even though the universe was kind of messy, I think it could have been salvaged without completely cleaning slate. But hey, we'll see how the general audience reacts. So far, people are not entirely thrilled about the Henry Cavill news and I think that's very understandable. I think he was a lot more popular as Superman than they thought he was, but I'll leave it at that for now. Now, let me talk about something that I am a little more passionate about, or as far as something that I like talking about a bit more, and that is the new Avatar movie, Avatar The Way of Water, directed by the world-famous James Cameron, who is Canadian, I found out last night. I actually never knew that, which... I don't know. I guess I should have known that, but I didn't know that. And not to say it changes my opinion of him, but it's an interesting piece of information for sure. But James Cameron, he's a legend. He's got so many movies that have been huge over the years. He had Avatar in 2009. That is the highest grossing movie of all time. I don't know. It goes back and forth with Avengers Endgame anytime those movies decide they want to re-release. And then Titanic was previously one of the top grossing movies of all time, and it's still up there as one of the top grossing movies of all time, which is amazing, by the way, that a movie like Titanic made that much money. Then, of course, he has Terminator and Terminator 2 Judgment Day, which is the most popular Terminator film. He did the sequel to Ridley Scott's Alien, which is titled Aliens. So a lot of people feel like James Cameron is the master of sequels because he's got some sequels that are absolute bangers, specifically Terminator 2 and Aliens. 
And so a lot of people are really looking forward to this Avatar movie, despite the fact a lot of people said, who really cares about Avatar anymore? The movie came out so long ago. I'll tell you who cares about it. People that know James Cameron and know that this guy, he can direct movies. So here's the story on it, though. I was supposed to see this movie on the opening Thursday night, IMAX 3D. And when I was getting the tickets, right when I was checking out, showed that my tickets were for Friday. So I said no. And I went back and I changed the day to Thursday and I got tickets for the Thursday. They said, I don't want to see it Friday. I want to see it Thursday. I don't want everyone else to get it like a day before me or a couple days before me. I want to get it as early as possible in IMAX 3D. So I got the Thursday showing. And then I checked a few days ago and it showed that my tickets were for Friday. I said, well, I specifically made sure that they were Thursday, but there must have just been something up. I don't know if it was just high traffic and the app was bugging out or what when I was ordering my tickets. But yeah, it showed me for Friday. Then I looked at Thursday and all of the seats were taken for the IMAX showings for all the good show times. But then I saw that there was an 1130 p.m. showtime on Thursday night. So I said, you know what? I'm going to do that. Now, here's the thing to know about Avatar 2. It is three hours and 11 minutes long. And here's another thing to know. I go to AMC theaters where they show minimum 25 minutes of trailers before every single film. And sure enough, this movie did not start until 11.59 p.m. So for those doing the math, I didn't get out of the movie until almost 3.10. And I ended up not getting home and getting to bed until around 4 a.m. So it was a very long night for me. And watching a movie like that when you're a little bit tired in IMAX 3D, it takes a lot, I tell you. It really takes a lot. So I liked this movie. I didn't love this movie. And that's not a knock on it because something you should know is I didn't like Avatar. 2009 Avatar, I was not a fan. I thought visually it was pretty impressive. I didn't really care for the story, didn't really care for any of the characters. And I just was not wowed by it the same way everyone else was. Part of it is that I was maybe too young to understand how technologically impressive the movie was. Whereas this one, I was able to appreciate a lot more of that. So it still runs into some of the same problems of the original for me. One of the main ones being that the antagonists are like the not U.S. military, but kind of the human military, which is a representation of the U.S. military, more or less. And I guess maybe they are American because the entire plot is that Earth is dying. So humans are on this planet Pandora trying to make a home there, harvest the resources, what have you. And of course, a big conflict in the first movie. I don't actually remember everything about it. I just know that they're trying to tear up parts of their forest and their sacred tree and stuff. And obviously, the native people of Pandora are not too keen on that because their forest, their land is just very sacred to them and they don't want it to be destroyed. And the first movie, there is Sam Worthington's character, Jake Sully, who is a paraplegic. Marine, who is in an Avatar body. That's why it's called Avatar, because they're put in the bodies of these aliens. And he ends up falling in love with one of the other aliens, who is played by Zoe Saldana. And yeah, they get really close throughout the movie. They have hair sex at one part, and 
in the end, he unites with their people against the humans. And one of the primary antagonists is played by Stephen Lang. He's playing some military general or commander. I don't know the exact ranks. And Jake Soli helps the native people of Pandora defeat these humans led by Stephen Lang's character at the end of Avatar. Cut to this movie and Stephen Lang is now in an Avatar body. They basically created one in a lab. And they just implanted all of his character's memories and thoughts and everything into him. I don't know exactly how it works, but I know enough about how it works. And I like that type of storytelling where it's, hey, look, I know enough. I know that they have these bodies created. And it's not that his consciousness is put into this alien, but all of his memories are put into this alien body. So more or less, it's the same guy. And he's got a whole crew of guys in these same Avatar bodies. And their mission is to go to Pandora and find Jake Sully, who was Sam Worthington's character, and kill him because he was a traitor. And because he was also appointed leader of the people of Pandora, who have been rebelling against the Sky People, aka the humans, ever since they came back to Pandora. They've been taking down their cargo ships, their patrol ships, and all that stuff, stealing their weapons and resources, because, of course, that's what the Sky People are there to do to them. So they're kind of just hitting back and protecting their land. And I should also note that this is years after the first Avatar movie, so at this point, Jake Soli has two sons who are both in the teenage range, and then they have a young daughter. And then they also have an adopted daughter who is played by Sigourney Weaver because she's like the daughter of Sigourney Weaver's character from the first. And she is, I keep saying an avatar, but the actual tribe, the name of the species is Navi, but she is one of them. And the hilarious thing, by the way, about Sigourney Weaver's character is that I was reading this story that said that Sigourney Weaver, in order to prepare to play this character in Avatar, went to like a local middle school. I think maybe she went to a handful of them and sat in during class to see how kids that age interacted and talked and things like that. And someone had said, imagine being in junior high, you choked a class high as shit. And then you look over next to you and Ripley from Alien is sitting there. (laughs) Which, yeah, I thought was a pretty funny thing to imagine. But anyway, I pulled it up. So Sigourney Weaver's character's name is Kiri. And then there is Took, that is the youngest daughter. And then there is Loak and Nediem are the sons. Now, I didn't say those all correctly, so I'll just refer to them as his sons. And I'm not going to go too deep into detail, so yeah. But like I said, time has passed, so Jake Soli now has this big family. And he realizes once Stephen Lang's character shows up with his crew of people, and they're trying to find him, and they actually briefly capture a couple of his kids, and then one of the other local kids, who's this human kid named Spider, who is actually the son of Stephen Lang's character from the 2009 movie, but he was just a baby, and you can't put babies in cryosleep, so he was just left there on Pandora with the science research team and the Navi people. So they basically took him in as one of their own. They described him as kind of a stray cat, that they just accepted into the family. But yeah, these kids get briefly captured by Stephen Lang and his crew. 
But Jake Soli and his wife, Natiri, I think is her name, they show up and they save the kids, all except for Spider, who Stephen Lang's crew gets away with so they can pick his brain and find out the exact location of Jake Soli. And so Jake determines that his family is not safe and that his people are not safe for as long as they are there because the people are going to keep coming after him. So they determine that they need to go to a new place with a new tribe where the humans will not find them. So they relocate to a new tribe that is a water tribe. And the interesting thing about them is that their bodies are more or less evolved for living by and in the water. They're well trained where they're able to breathe better, they're able to swim faster, and so that is going to be a struggle for Jake's family. So there is this element of, yes, they're on the run from the sky people, but it's also Jake just moved to a new place with his family and they're trying to acclimate and fit in with a group of people that they are very, very different from. And so a big part of the movie is really following that, the relationship between Jake and his sons, between his sons and the people of this tribe that they are now with. And there's some other stuff going on with Sigourney Weaver's character, the teenage girl version of her character that is kind of interesting and I feel like they're going to go deeper into in future movies because a lot of it is not resolved. You see a lot of stuff and I think it sets up for some interesting stuff, but I don't think enough was shown. But she seems to be a pretty interesting character for sure. But yeah, as somebody that felt that the 2009 movie was pretty much just visuals and nothing else, the story was really basic and the characters were not very memorable. I like the characters more in this one. I still don't like the military characters like Stephen Lang and his people. I just feel like their dialogue is super cheesy and the way they behave is just like super cliched action movie villain type of stuff. I don't know. It's it's hard to explain, but I just feel like they are not the best written characters. The way they interact and the stuff they do just feels very like, oh yeah, that's what the bad guy would do, I guess. So if there were a weak point in this movie, I would say the screenplay is not always up to par. There is some very good dialogue in the movie, but then there's also some dialogue that is like, uh, yeah, that's not the best. It's a little bit clunky, which James Cameron is kind of not to say notorious for that, but it is a complaint I've seen people have about his movies is that the screenplays can be a little bit clunky. The dialogue's a little clunky at times. But I do think that there is overall better character work because the stuff focusing on Jake Soli's family, I think is very good. I think that there are actual memorable characters and performances in this movie. And there are some good character arcs throughout the movie as well. Now, as far as the visuals go, I watched this in IMAX 3D and I gotta say I had a really hard time watching it for the first half hour. It took a while for my brain and eyes to really process exactly what I was watching. It was a bit of a sensory overload. And to be honest, I've had that issue with a lot of 3D movies. And I'm not entirely sure what it is. I think it's just a bit too much for me to engage with at times. Although I was eventually able to adapt and enjoy the movie. But for the first half hour, it was really tough for me to watch this. I was even getting a little bit nauseous watching it. Which makes me understand other people watching these rich visual movies. Because I mentioned that there was this study that movies that are a little more bland visually 
are typically better received by the general audience as far as people understand them better. I don't exactly remember what the study had concluded, but it was basically something like movies with less range in their color and visuals are better understood by the audience. And I think it is because of that whole sensory overload thing that happens with some people. And that's why it's interesting. There are directors that I really, really like that have these strong visual styles, but I'll see a lot of general audience members will say, oh, that movie made no sense. And I'll be like, what are you talking about? That made perfect sense. But now it's like, okay, watching Avatar. And then I watched The Force Awakens in 3D. That was my first time watching it was on a 3D TV with 3D glasses. And then Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2, same case. And I remember at the end of those movies being like, huh, I couldn't even tell you much about the plots of those movies. I just remember not entirely liking them. And it was just maybe too much for my brain to process. But I see that all the time with like Zack Snyder movies, Denny Villeneuve movies, Michael Bay movies, Ridley Scott movies that people say, oh, that didn't make any sense. I'm like, really? I thought I explained it really well, but I think it is because of the visual aspect. Maybe it's just a sensory overload for some people. So when there's these crazy rich visuals going on, it may just be hard to process everything else that's being said and delivered to you, the audience member. Not sure. Just a thought. That's my theory on it. And I guess there was a scientific study. I'll have to pull it up sometime to actually read exactly what that said. And I'll bring it to one of these episodes next time I'm talking about something like this. But once I really adjusted to these visuals, I really enjoyed that aspect of the movie. It's just a beautiful, beautiful film, which I expected. But at the same time, it was still just really cool to see. It was very immersive. It felt new and fresh, like nothing I'd ever seen before. And in some ways, it almost felt like you were on a ride at Universal Studios with how interactive the 3D was, because James Cameron knew what he was doing when he shot this in 3D. He talked about some of the stuff that they did so that it could be better enjoyed as opposed to other 3D movies, which are kind of just shot regularly. And then they say, hey, let's make it 3D. And maybe they do a few things with their cameras while shooting. So there's some 3D sequences, but large in part. The movie is not conceived from start to finish as a 3D film, but this one absolutely was. It was conceived as an IMAX 3D movie from the very start. And so there are several scenes and sequences that are enhanced by the 3D experience. I'm looking forward to watching it in a non-3D setting because I feel I'll be able to focus a little bit better from start to finish. But at the same time, I think it was definitely worth it to check out an IMAX 3D for my first viewing. I talked about the beauty of the visuals, but there's also these action sequences throughout the movie that are just spectacular. And I mean, the VFX is really, really good. The designs of the ships, boats, mech suits, all that stuff was really cool. And the newer aliens that you're introduced to, the newer fish and flying creatures, that stuff was really cool. But there are some action sequences like the third act of the movie is pretty action packed and it went pretty hard. Like I was a huge fan of that. I kept seeing people talk about the third act of the movie where they said, man, that third act is one of the greatest third acts of all time. Oh, that third act went so hard. Oh, that third act was fire. And I got to say, yeah, it was a really good third act. It was action packed and I think it dragged a little bit too long at one particular part. But otherwise, I definitely dug that. I think the movie peaked there, which I am a fan of movies peaking in their third act because that's the last note you're going to leave on. 
but it was pretty incredible. And the only unfortunate thing is I mentioned that this is a three-hour movie that I showed up at 11.34 and the movie didn't start till midnight. So yeah, it went past three in the morning and I was pretty tired for most of the second half of the movie. So I gave it a good rating. I said I liked the movie. I didn't love the movie. I do wonder if on rewatch, watching it non-3D earlier in the day, maybe in a Dolby theater, if I'll be able to enjoy it more. But regardless, it's a good movie and it's an incredible visual experience. So if you're curious to see this one, yeah, you should absolutely be there. You got to see it in theaters. If you like the first movie, I think you'll really like this one as well. Is it long? Yeah, it's long. It felt longer for me because I was tired, but there wasn't a ton of stuff in the movie that I would say, oh, they could have cut this, they could have cut this. There were maybe some scenes that could have been a bit better or could have been spiced up with better dialogue, but largely I enjoyed a majority of this film. And I think it's going to make a lot of noise at the box office. Not that the box office is all that matters, but when a movie costs this much to make and when there's this much hype when it's been this long since the previous film, I think it really need to deliver in terms of money because James Cameron wants to make a lot more of these. So I think he's going to get the money that he wants out of this movie so that he can keep making Avatar movies. That's what I think. He said they need to get close to $2 billion. I honestly wouldn't be shocked. I can say it's going to hit $1 billion. I don't know if it'll get to the two, but I wouldn't be shocked if it did. Anyway, to wrap this up, I mentioned I like the movie. And one thing that I cannot go without saying is that nobody can quite whip that thing like James Cameron can. And I'm talking about the camera, of course, because some of the camera work in this movie is just so dynamic. It's so unique. And the way it's whipping back and forth during some of these action sequences is just so riveting. It's so compelling. Like I just was a huge fan of that. There's nobody that can quite do it like him. And frankly, he's not even one of my favorite directors. It's funny. I've seen a lot of his movies and I like most of them. I don't really love any of them. And that's not a knock on him. I'm able to watch them and say, these are really well-made movies. They're just not entirely my taste. But I can't help but appreciate the craftsmanship that goes into his films. He's just one of a kind in terms of talent. And so this movie was absolutely a full display of what he can do as a filmmaker. And people have asked him about Avatar sequels, if he intends to direct all of them. And he basically said, I'm the only guy that can direct these. If anyone else were to direct them, I'd have to teach them how to do so. And some people thought he was kind of full of himself for that. But no, the fact is, this guy just has a talent that not too many people have. Like this skill that he has is unmatched. And I mean, it's funny because you get guys like James Cameron, Quentin Tarantino, Ridley Scott, Denny Villeneuve, Martin Scorsese, who will say stuff about the Marvel Cinematic Universe and then a bunch of little nerds jump on them because they're like, oh, they're just jealous. And it's like, no, the reason they're saying this stuff is because the stuff that these guys are doing behind the camera is stuff that the directors of the most popular brand the MCU, which I guess is not entirely thriving right now. It's still doing okay, but it's not at its peak anymore. But the stuff that those directors do compared to what the MCU directors do, it's not even close. I'm sorry, it's not even close. Like, I dare you to watch Avatar and try to convince yourself for one second that there is a single MCU director that could shoot the sequences in this movie. It just could not be done. You would never find something 
like this in their universe and even outside of their universe by the same directors, you would not find a movie like this. It's one of a kind. He's a one of a kind talent. And that's why these directors go so hard on stuff that is not to say corporate garbage, but definitely not high art like these guys are trying to make. And you can argue and say, oh, well, Avatar is just a dumb blockbuster at this and this. Yeah, sorry. It's absolutely pushing the boundaries of cinema with what it's doing visually. There's just innovative stuff that is being done with these movies that will shape how movies are shot for the next 10, 20 years, the same way it was with Avatar. It was a groundbreaking visual movie, and this one is somehow just as groundbreaking as the first film. So that's why I stand with these filmmakers that will occasionally take shots at some of these popular movies, comic book movies, MCU movies, and it's because they have this special talent and they are actively trying to do new things, be innovative, and create art at the end of the day. And when there are big companies that are kind of drowning out everyone else's voices because they're cranking out three, four movies a year, and the movies they're releasing aren't even complete, or they'll have been reshot at the last minute, recut at the last minute. Like there are deleted scenes to Thor Love and Thunder where if you watch them, they completely contradict the movie that was released in theaters and that's on Disney Plus right now. I dare you to watch those deleted scenes and then come to me and say, this was a movie made by a filmmaker who wrote a story and had one distinct vision and then told that story according to his vision. No. Clearly, there was a story there. And then clearly, another story was brought in because they wanted to tell another story after this story. And there's just a million examples of that in their universe where it's not just a movie made by one guy. Now, Obviously, Avatar has a million talented people that worked on it, but I mean, it's not one distinct vision. It's a guy who's directing a movie for a studio that has a vision for their universe and not necessarily a vision for their film. Maybe the director at some point has a vision for his film, but if that conflicts with the studio's vision for their universe, then changes are made to that film. As happens with a lot of blockbuster movies, sure, but even more so in a universe like the MCU where everything has to be connected, everything has to match in tone and style. So they come off more like these generic films off of a conveyor belt as opposed to stuff that these other filmmakers are making. And that's why they take this so personal. That's why it's so serious to them is because they are trying to wow the audiences with new stuff and when there's a company that's not really doing that, that kind of just has their audience and keeps feeding them the same stuff over and over again, I can understand the frustration there. And when you got even directors like Steven Spielberg, where West Side Story made no money at the box office in his movie The Fablemans, nobody even knew it released and didn't even get a wide release as far as every theater didn't get it at the same time on the same weekend. They got spread out. Different theaters got it at different times. This is Steven Spielberg we're talking about, guys. So yeah, I just think that guys like James Cameron deserve their respect. And so I was glad that this movie came out and I'm glad that he was able to stick the landing on this one. I think a lot of people are going to love it. I was a fan of it. It's not going to be one of my favorites of the year. It's not going to be in my top five movies, but that's okay because I'm glad I got to watch a movie made by a truly and purely talented filmmaker. 
anyway, rambled a bit there, but that's just my thoughts on the film and kind of the state of blockbusters. I think this past year, especially, we have gotten some of the best blockbusters of the past decade, and none of them have been comic book movies outside of maybe the Batman. And even then, I think there have been better blockbusters this year than the Batman. But even in the past year and a half, we got Dune, we got Top Gun Maverick, and I'd also throw No Time to Die in there. I thought that that was a pretty unique blockbuster. But anyway, that's all I got for today. I'm going to try and release a few more Christmas episodes before Christmas Day. So be on the lookout for those. There are some other movies coming out in the next week that I'm going to try and catch at the theater. So I'm excited to check those out and also excited, obviously, to talk about them with you guys. So please subscribe to my podcast if you have not already. Maybe turn on that notification bell so that you know when my new episodes drop in case you are not following me on Instagram or not regularly checking when I'm posting on Instagram if you would like to stay up to date on all of my newest episodes. But like I said, that's it for today. I appreciate you guys tuning in and we will talk later.